Welcome to She Is Your Neighbor, a show where we discuss the realities and complexities of domestic violence. This podcast is brought to you by Women's Crisis Services of Waterloo Region, a charitable organization in Ontario, Canada. I'm your host, Jenna Main. Join me as we talk to different people each week to learn how domestic violence impacts people from all walks of life. She is your neighbor, and we all have a role to play in ending domestic violence. This episode is called How Femicide Affects Children with Sarah Robertson. Sarah is a child welfare worker and a former board member of Women's Crisis Services. She's also a survivor of domestic violence. Many years ago, Sarah was in a relationship that ended, and after this, a tragedy occurred. Following the tragedy, Sarah used her knowledge of child welfare to protect her and her family. In this episode, we learn how Sarah was able to move forward with her children and build a new life free from abuse. This episode is part of our six-episode series called Understanding Femicide, which explores what happens when domestic violence and stalking becomes lethal. In this episode, you will hear Sarah referring to the tragedy. What she is referring to when she says this is a death that unfortunately occurred. After she and her ex-husband split up, he got into a new relationship and he actually killed his new partner's child. So in this episode, the focus is really on Sarah and her story and how the relationship impacted her and her children. But she does refer to the tragedy in the episode, and so I wanted it to be really clear what she is referring to when she says this. There is so much I admire about Sarah, and even though I've known her for a few years now, uh, as she was on our board of directors, this was something I never knew about her. So it's been really inspiring to hear her open up and share this now. And I just think it takes a lot of bravery to share something so deeply personal that had such an impact on her. And that's what Sarah does in this episode. And I'm just so grateful that she is allowing us to learn from her story and her experience. Before we get started, I'd like to note that the following episode includes a discussion of domestic violence and abuse, which may be distressing or traumatic for some listeners. Please take care of yourself and don't hesitate to ask for help if you need it. I'd also like to thank Rogers for proudly sponsoring this series. Hey, Sarah. Thanks so much for being here today. Hi, Jenna. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's really great. I'm glad we could have you on an episode here. I've been really looking forward to talking to you. So uh, I know it's going to be a really great conversation. Oh, well, thanks. It's a pleasure and a, and a privilege, really, to be a participant in the She Is Your Neighbor podcast. So thank you for including me. Yeah, thank you. So we're just going to start by having you share a little bit about yourself, if you don't mind. Sheesh, yeah. I am... Um... What a little bit about myself. Well, I am a mom. I feel like that's probably my first and foremost biggest responsibility in the world. I have uh, a blended family of five children, so we're pretty busy, and uh, most of them are now grown grown up, sort of in their twenties. And I am also a social worker, so I work in child welfare, and I have you know lived in the region for most of my life, and. I come from a really big family and, and uh, I've been really lucky to have uh, lots of supports in my life. And yeah, I guess that's kind of just a little bit about me. 
Yeah, that's great. Thank you. And you were also, I want to make a note here that you were on the Women's Crisis Services Board of Directors for a long time too. And uh, we're so grateful to have you on the board. So I, I want to mention that as well. Yeah, that was a really, really great experience. It was kind of my first opportunity to sort of really get back involved um, within the community because I work outside of the community and and also very passionate, obviously, about um, women's services and uh, supporting families that have experienced domestic violence. And so it was really great to be part of such an amazing organization. There's just so much work that is done and in the community. And it's it was a real privilege, great learning experience. So I really enjoyed the opportunity to be part of the board. Oh, great. Yeah. And so today we're going to be talking about domestic violence, of course. And we're also going to be talking about femicide, as you know, this is part of our femicide series. So I was wondering if you could explain a little bit about how femicide has impacted your life. Yeah, I mean, um, such a serious um, and prevalent issue. It's so scary that it is still um, such a big part of our conversations and and that since the pandemic, certainly the rates continue to increase and uh, that's such a such a big worry. Femicide is has touched a lot of people in Canada, a lot of families. And so its impact on me within the field and personally, you know we certainly have intersections when these tragedies have occurred uh, in families' lives. And often femicide, um, Along with that is just lethality that impacts beyond the victim of violence. It can be the children that are connected to the families. It could be other partners then that have that experience if the perpetrator moves on to to other relationships. It also impacts family members. It can also be co-workers. It can be um, friends and families that are supporting the family that's impacted by violence. And so we do see tragedies that really affect a whole sphere of individuals. And I think that's how the intersection has, or how it has intersected with my life personally. And that in my experience with domestic violence as a survivor, that uh, then the tragedy went beyond. I mean, I was, I was very fortunate uh, that I was, I survived um, and that my children survived. And I just um, acknowledge that tragedies did occur though, as a result of um, the individual that was the perpetrator in my life. And um, just such a uh, huge and deeply impacting situation that is just, uh, you know, at years and years later still, uh, really is still a, a significant part of uh, what I hold in my heart. And I'm sure for those that were impacted directly, it's it's something that will just always be such a, um, a tragedy for them as well. So it has uh, really been something that I've carried. And yeah, I guess that's, it's, it's hard to say, you know, with femicide or when others that are impacted by domestic violence or domestic homicide, I think there's always so many things that happen and lead up to actually the femicide or the homicide itself. And I think uh, that's where I was really most directly impacted or in the, the years before the tragedy did occur. And so that has been um, certainly, of course, life-changing for me, but I, I don't ever want to suggest that that was as, as significant as the others that were impacted directly. Thank you for sharing that. I know it's really difficult to talk about, um, but I, I do think it's really important in terms of raising awareness and um, just reaching out to other survivors and letting them know they're not alone. So thank you for sharing that. 
And if you're comfortable, I wondered if you could tell us a little bit more about your story and your journey with domestic violence. Yeah, you know, it's uh, a lot of years of therapy to unpack it all um, and certainly trying to unravel, you know, how did I get there and, and how did this all happen? And I think, you know, it starts so far back in how we understand relationships and how we structure what we expect um, of women uh, in relationships. I think over time, you start having, uh, in, in my own personal experience, and, and certainly it's unique, everybody has, has a different kind of path or how it affects them. And so I'm really just sharing from my own perspective on, on what that was like for myself. And I can uh, see how uh, my perspectives of healthy relationships was really distorted and what it meant to be in a relationship. And I think what was most significant is that, you know, I came from a family where my, you know, there was healthy relationships. My parents didn't um, certainly even fight in front of us. So it wasn't like I was raised with a sense of a distorted relationship, but I think it was just really how we structured, how I understood what I should be able to expect. And then there was this really insidious nature of how I would say coercive control and power and control um, then completely impacted over time. And it starts with very small things. And, and it's almost, you know, the start of the relationship is really intense and fast and um, it, it seems exciting. And so you, you know, you, you get kind of wrapped up in this, what you think is going to be and hope and dream is going to be a, a really positive thing. And then over time, these small things start building upon each other. So it's really hard to identify as it starts to kind of whittle away at your own self-perception your self-esteem, what your own needs are, you you start questioning yourself, you start questioning what you're experiencing. And I think especially with uh, coercion and the manipulation, it really then, you know, you almost start thinking, is this all about me? Is it just in my head? And you really start second guessing yourself as a person. And as that impacts you and, and your self-worth decreases, the control increases. And the key part of that is also the isolation that is kind of goes along with it. So at the same time, you know, you're being isolated from your family, from your friends, all those control mechanisms are happening. And so then the next thing you know, you're kind of feeling that you're in the situation that you don't know how to how to get out of. And you keep trying to, you know, talk yourself out of um, your own reality and, and certainly gaslighting is a is a huge a part of that, really challenging with intention what your perceptions are of, of a situation. And so it's in all of that second guessing that doesn't happen overnight. It, it happens, you know, over weeks and months and years. And then you're stuck in a, in a situation in which you just, you're not sure really how you can get, get out of it. And as, you know, we had children, um, that becomes a whole other uh, experience because now it's not just about you as the individual trying to escape. It's about how do you protect your children and what's best going to be for planning for them and how are you then also going to remove all of you to keep them safe. And so that uh, becomes really complicated. And I know for anybody that's a survivor or a victim of it, you're constantly weighing out all of these different um, scenarios uh, and possibilities and and um, and with a focus of trying to keep the kids safe. So you, you almost stay 
as well, because you think that the risk to them can increase if you do leave. And, and quite honestly, that is, is very true that uh, we know that when women separate from their partners, the increase of violence is significant, that there is uh, certainly the risk increases in that period of time. And, um, and so you're, you're trying to navigate all of those uh, possible situations and scenarios. And, and I think if you're doing it with your kids as well, you're, you know, it is harder to just make that move. Yeah, for sure. There's so many factors to consider. And as you said, you said it was, it's insidious, right? It starts so small and it's almost something you might not notice at first and then it can gradually build and build and and escalate and become more dangerous too, especially when you, you go to leave a relationship. And I know you were able to successfully leave the relationship with your children. I wonder if you could talk about a bit what it was like once you were able to leave the impact that this had on your children and, and what it was like to to rebuild from this. Yeah, um, it was it required several months of thought and and um, and most of my family and friends would probably not have known any of this was happening. I think, you know. My mom had some thoughts at times wondering if everything was okay, but she really just didn't know how to reach out or how to support or even ask the question, you know? And so I think for months, it was some contemplation for me, you know, what do I need to do? How can I do this safely? And I think the key piece was at that time when I made the decision to go, my family was a huge support, you know, they came together and and we sat down and we did some planning on what it could look like and who needed to be around and um, and how were we going to make it happen. And and I was really fortunate to have a job and an education. And so that also afforded me other opportunities and options so that I could foresee that I could do it on my own with the kids. Uh, I think it was really not easy. When you look back, you think it's so hard to imagine how you could feel possibly safe again. And I think in truth, it probably has only been in the last few years where there's been a shift for how I can even just feel safe. So that's, you know, almost two decades that it's taken to even get into that point where I can let go of some of those things that deeply impacted me. Because before, you know, I was separated for about uh, a couple of years and that the uh, behaviors of my ex-partner at the time was constant, you know, constant phone calls following me, showing up on the way to work, showing up in places that I was just out. So just constantly feeling that there was somebody watching me, that someone could show up and take the kids at any time and, and lots of manipulation, you know, in the system, whether it was the, the legal system, like family court, trying to access support through police. You know, a lot of the systems really just didn't understand what the threats were. It was hard to articulate that, you know, you're carrying a lot of shame, so you still don't even want to really talk openly about my experience or what that uh, means. And I think, I don't know when the subsequent tragedy did occur, it did change a bit as far as our ability to be able to go forward. But there was just so much then at that point we were carrying as a family, as individuals in terms of fear and and stress and shame. And the kids were pretty young at the time. uh, So you know, people think that they don't get impacted, but they really, you know, all kids at every age do. And developmentally, I think we're learning just how much it does impact children at every age, you know, infants, toddlers, nonverbal kids, they're all about senses, you know, so they sense your fear, they sense your stress, they sense their environment, they can feel it. And so it does impact them. And I can see, you know, growing up, 
the vigilance and and anxiety and sort of a, a hyper vigilance for sure that they've had uh, in in their lives and really how intentional we had to be about supporting them while also trying to work through my own triggers and experiences and fear in truth. So it is really hard for parents that are trying to navigate that with their children. Uh, and there's no easy answers. And it's so important then that you can have this circle of safety around you to be able to to support along the way. And that's what was so huge. I mean, in my new partner in in the family, in in coaches, in in neighbors, you know, without them, not only for me personally, but for the kids, it was just it made a huge difference for us to be able to to get through a lot of some some really hard times. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. I know I think we can't underestimate the importance of neighbors and family and friends in all of this. It's it's not something someone can get through alone, definitely not easily anyways. So I'm glad to hear you did have support, people to lean on and you mentioned you had a job at the time. So, you know, there's a few things that you had there that you could lean on for support. Um, I'm glad to hear that, but it just what a difficult situation that would be, especially to hear, you know, it wasn't just when you were in the relationship, it was after you left the relationship, it continued, right? And you talked a bit about this fear that kind of continued. Yeah, just because, you know, when I think of how I reached out to Women's Crisis Services at the time, there was a lot of sleepless nights, I would be awake, um, lights are all on in the house. Um, I was just on alert, waiting and hoping to be prepared should something happen. And I would call the, the crisis line in the middle of the night or late at night and just have them sit with me on the phone and and talk to me just to feel like I had some company. And so especially when it is so isolating at times, it was so critical to be able to reach out and have that voice there telling me it was okay, I can get through it, you know, just get through one day at a time. And, uh, and so that was that was really huge during some of those really difficult moments. Oh, wow. That's, that's really great to hear, at least that that was comforting. And, and because I can't imagine the fear, that would just be a a really frightening situation. And I know, I don't want to get into this too much. But I, I know you did mention that there was a femicide that you were aware of afterwards, or a domestic homicide, I should probably say. Um, And I'm sure that this may have added to the fear for you. So I can't imagine how you're able to get through it. I think you're very strong and very brave to be able to do that and um, to move forward with your kids. And I know you also work in child welfare, so you see the impact on children. And I wondered if you wanted to talk a little bit more about this. Did, Did this kind of help you in your journey at all? What a great question, because to be a part of a system that certainly is involved in domestic violence, I think in the early days, I didn't make the connection that that was me. And so I had these kind of two things happening, what I was doing in my work and what was happening in my home life. Because as I said, that sort of insidious nature, the way it kind of built over time, you're not even really seeing that's you. And so then when I was planning on what I needed to do in order to keep myself and my family safe, my role in child welfare actually complicated it because I knew of at the time, there's a responsibility on the non-offending parent, really, to do the right things, to get out of the house, to make sure that the court understands. And it really rests on the 
well, it rested on me. And coupled in that is the system then looking, how do I how do I make a call for help? Because I was really worried about how that would impact my job. Um, I knew that, that it would warrant a referral. So at times it prevented me from reaching out when I should have. It also though then afforded a different type of opportunity in that I did understand the legal system. I understood what was expected in family court. I was able to then have some of the skills and knowledge to help me advocate where I needed to, uh, both at that time. But even as we were now out of the situation and safe, I also knew then within the system where I needed to advocate, whether that was with police or with the school or uh, with child welfare as well. So it was complicated um, for myself personally. And then now going forward, I think it's enriched my perspective, just as anybody's lived experience doing doing child welfare or doing the work in general. It, it does um, enrich your understanding of, of how it does impact families, um, the impact on children, and helping people to maybe also navigate and advocate within the systems where possible. And as I said, we still have a ways to go. Um, I think there's been some positive changes, and certainly our focus in child welfare has has begun to shift, but there's definitely, as you can see with the numbers of referrals still to shell welfare around domestic violence, and certainly when femicide or domestic homicide continues to increase, we see that there's definitely more work to be done. Thank you for sharing that. I think it's so complicated when it comes to parenting children with someone who is abusive, especially when you part the relationship, you have concerns for safety. How are you supposed to navigate this? And it's really interesting to hear your perspective working in the child welfare field as well and how that overlapped a little bit, but how it could also make it more difficult for you if you did need help. So I do appreciate you sharing that and elaborating on it. I'm curious, was there an expectation once you left the relationship, did you have to share custody at all in the beginning with your ex-partner? I know eventually you're able to separate and I don't believe you've been in contact, but um, I'm curious how this worked out at the beginning. Yeah, it was, um, we still, the messaging I got from even when I reached out for police or had to go before the family courts there was a clear message that it was my responsibility to ensure that there was a positive relationship and that onus still being on the um, woman. That's, I think, where maybe my experience in the field was helpful because there was strategy involved in truth, strategy on the steps that I was going to take in order to move through the system, to have primary custody, to develop safe access plans, to try to make a judgment about when I didn't think it was safe and how to improve safety for access, but also just every time the kids were out of my sight, it was gut-wrenching. And there was manipulation as well, right? To use the kids to instill fear, to have some leverage over me, including my job. So, you know, making calls to um, child welfare um, as part of that manipulation and that that continued power over. And so, uh, you know, again, having some really key people to help support me and keep building me up so that I would be able to push through that. Uh, so there was a lot of strategy in those early days on how to navigate the, the family court system particularly. And then when the tragedy did occur before the other family, it did change then obviously what the contact there was ever going to be going forward for my children with him. And so since then, I was able to actually, we were able to pursue with my new partner. He adopted three children. And for them, 
having caring adults in their lives that help them feel where they can see a positive, healthy relationship was really key to be able to to go forward and certainly help then draw a very solid line as to what the role of that person was going to be in our lives, at least until as long as they were children in my care. So I think that made a huge difference, even though it was devastating for others involved. Definitely. Thank you for sharing that as well. And could you maybe talk a bit about how you and your family are doing now? I know you've moved into a lot of advocacy work, you know, over the years, as we talked about, you joined the board of directors at Women's Crisis Services, and you do a lot of other advocacy work for domestic violence and family violence. Uh, Maybe you'd be willing to share a little bit about that. Yeah, you know, you never feel like you're doing quite enough or the right things. But I think certainly myself, I, I try to become involved where I can or to help make a difference where I can. It feels like just really small steps on the big scheme of things that that uh, could really change. And, and as I've said, you know, so much more work needs to be done. And so I, I do see going forward other things and goals that I have as to where we might be able to move uh, systems along and, and make some positive changes for women and families um, and other equity uh, deserving groups that are also over represented in terms of femicide and and domestic violence in general. And so seeing opportunities to be able to do that, it still isn't easy, as I said, like it's years of getting help and processing and letting go. As the kids move through developmental stages in their lives, it created other uh, challenges for them and for us. And so lots of really candid and difficult conversations to help support them to move through it as well. And I I bet that'll be lifelong for them as it will be for all of us. It is something that just changes you forever. So you're never the same person as we were 20, 25 years ago. And so I think, you know, for them uh, and my new partner now is a strong advocate for women's rights and being an ally, you know, as a male to help make changes as well. So all of us collectively being really open about our experiences and trying to support each other through it is really how it goes because there's triggers too. You know, even this time, there'll be simple things. It can be a smell, a situation, a song, someone's voice, a loud noise, and those will still always be imprints on each of us. So I think we also are trying to make sure that, um, you know, we don't hold on to that and we can kind of let go of, of our shared pain and fear going forward. And I'm just amazed on how many kids, just how truly amazing they are and how many things that they have done and how connected they are and just how many people were uh, willing to be there for them. And so even when we had some really difficult times, you know, they had people that were in their corner and, and didn't give up. And I think that was really critical uh, for us to be able to get to where we are today, which is still not arrived at any special place, let me tell you. Uh, but it is, um, you know, we just keep navigating through it. That's really the key thing that we can do to be there for each other. Yeah, it really is amazing to hear how you and your family have been able to move forward and all the great work you're doing. I know it it does never feel like there's enough we can do and there's so much more we can do, but I just want you to know you're doing a wonderful job, Sarah. I think you're such a great advocate and ally and you do so much for women and children in this community and outside this community. So thank you for that. And I believe you're- Thanks, Jenna. And I believe you're also doing some work with the Domestic Violence Death Review Committee as well. So that's really important work too, and helping do research into this and, and 
take a look at these tragedies that have occurred and think about what we can learn from it, right? What are the red flags? And I know that's a lot of work that the DVDRC does. Um, spoken with Peter Jaffe in the past as well, and, and just thinking about what are some of the common themes and, and similarities. And I'm sure that's very interesting work that you're doing too, that's making a really big impact. Yeah, the DVDRC has done some really incredible work, and and I've only had the opportunity to be involved in the last year, and actually they had done such a bulk of research and involvement of multiple stakeholders to in their analysis of experiences and trying to have good research that certainly, as you said, identify risk factors and making recommendations for multiple systems. And so you know, some of those resources and supports we even reached out for in, you know, as we were moving through our journey, but certainly now there have additional recommendations that the um, committee is bringing forward. And so I was able to be a part of that as a stakeholder to help, you know, share and review and talk through some of those recommendations. The risk factors they've identified are, are really clear. And it's, uh, you know, I think one of the recommendations they've always had is, for systems to have and use some form of a threat or risk assessment, danger assessments, they have different names. And one thing that I'd really like to advocate going forward is having one standardized risk or threat assessment tool that every single system is familiar with so that there is, you know, no matter which door you walk through, someone would be able to use that tool. We would recognize it amongst service providers. And most importantly, that it would be something that the legal system would accept as a valid tool that they would use to inform the decisions that they're making in in uh, family matters, because that's a really a key area that we need some um, support and some good language and and something concrete that will help inform uh, decisions around custody and access, especially. Right now, we have multiple tools that we can use, and I think it would be helpful if we had something that was standardized that we would all be able to use and and recognize with each other and, and speak the same language so that when we're assessing risk and threat of harm, we're all on the same page and assessing the same areas so that when we see that it's higher risk, we know what those factors are and then we can actually make decisions and safety plans that will match the risk that we're seeing as we uh, do those assessments. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. I think that'd be a great idea to implement moving forward. Difficult, I'm sure, but necessary, I think, um, especially to prevent tragedies ultimately. And Sarah, I'm wondering... I know it may be a bit obvious, but I'm wondering if you could speak to why this conversation is important to you. Yeah, it is. um, You know, I think the biggest thing is I've heard it in the other Survivor series, you know, everybody consistently talking about the shame that they carry and whether, you know, you successfully survive it, you still carry the shame. You know, I think of Anna Maria Toronto in how many years, you know, and but every single person Um, talks about that. And so uh, why is it important to me is that I do want to break that shame that survivors carry um, and to increase the awareness and the stigmatization that goes with, because I do think that prevents people from reaching out and accessing support and help when they need it, because it's a heavy burden. And I still, uh, to this day, am, you know, uh, challenged by it. And I can feel it, how it affects, you know, my perception of myself and and other things. And so that I think is one of the reasons why uh, it's something that I still continue to want to advocate or even to be a part of this project is if I can help 
in any way for a survivor to know that it is not about them, um, that there are so many people in their corner and that we are changing the face of people's perceptions on who this happens to and why it happens and, and to not carry that shame because it's not about us. It's about them entirely. And that shame belongs with them. Exactly. And the last thing I want to ask you is something we ask all our guests. Of course, part of this series is considering how we can all be better neighbors to uh, women and children and anybody experiencing domestic violence. And I'm wondering your thoughts on how we can be better neighbors. I think from a survivor to survivor, it is, um, you know, we're here for you. We've got you. There are supports out there. And so I think that's one key message as a takeaway, I think, as, as neighbors and people in the community. After COVID, it's really important for us to rebuild those connections again. We've seen an increase and in, in an increase in the isolation, which just increased risk. So build those connections again with your neighbors. Start doing that reach out with family and friends. And also step up and show up when you're hearing misogynistic comments. It's so pervasive. And so advocate where you can and challenge those conversations and people's beliefs where you can, because I think that's as far upstream as we need to go to start changing how women and all equity deserving groups are treated and need to be empowered. So I think that's really important thing for us to be able to do as neighbors. And I do think systems need to step up and we need to, you know, continue sustainable funding and support. And we know that most systems are patriarchal and colonial in nature. So it is is really continuing for us to challenge those systems, whether we work in them or not, to start shifting the landscape to support women, children, and all equity deserving groups for sure. Thank you so much for being here today, Sarah. I really, really appreciate learning from you. And I can't thank you enough for sharing your story. I know it's going to empower a lot of people who are listening. Thank you. Thanks, Jenna. It's been a privilege. That wraps up this week's show, but the conversation is far from over. We want to hear what you think. Use the hashtag SheIsYourNeighbor on Instagram, TikTok, Facebook, or Twitter and join in the conversation. We all have a role to play in ending domestic violence.